What interests, what interests me here is the... We have two minor holidays in our calendar. One, of course, is Hanukkah. The second is Purim. They are minor in the sense that they're not biblical. Not necessarily minor in the sense of no significance. So I thought it would be a useful thing to explore some of the differences between Hanukkah and Purim. Also some of the commonalities. And um, this will take us into, uh, among other things, look at the focus will be the biblical text. It's not historical in any sense. Um, but to look at the texts surround, which surround the idea of Hanukkah and Purim, and certainly the Purim as the rabbinic tradition understood it. How the Purim itself is interesting in terms of what the Megillah seems to say, in terms of what the rabbinic texts say about it, how it's interpreted, etc. I would, just to begin with one, I'll read you a text, a Gemara, from Masechet Arachin, famous Gemara. The context over there on uh, in Masechet Arachin, just to, by way of introducing this topic, Gemara talks about Om Rabbi Yochanan Mishim Rabbi Shimon Ben Yotzadok Shmonos Yamim Shayachid Gomer Behenet Ahavah So Rabbi Yochanan is quoted on the Afyud in Masechet Arachim there are 18 days on which the individual says Ahavah 18 days Shmona Yemei Achag the eight, talking about in the land of Israel, not outside Israel. Outside the land of Israel, the 21 days, because we have the second day yonder. But the 18 days are the 18 days, are eight days of Chag, Chag is Sukkot. The eight days of Sukkot is eight. Shmona Yemei Chanukah. And with the eight days of Chanukah, at 16. Yom Tov Arishon Shal Pesach. Pesach, the first day of Pesach, at 17. The Yom Tov Shavat Seret. And Seret is Shavuot. Holiday of Shavuot, which in Israel is one day. On those days we say Hara. For a total of 18 days. But outside Israel, in Golis, there's more days. There's nine days of Sukkot, two days of Pesach, two days of Shavuot. So 21 days. That's the Gemara. It's a statement in the Gemara. An Arachim Daf Yud. Well-known statement. The Gemara asked several questions on the statement, though. That's a quote citation. And the Gemara has several questions about Havel. First question is, Maishna Bechag da Amrinan Koyoma, U Maishna Bepesach to Amrinan Koyoma. So the Gemara's question is, how come, we question, how come on Sukkot we say Havel every day? But on Pesach we only say Havel one time. We actually say it also at night. At the Seder, there's another custom to say it in Shul at night, to Minagim, whatever. That's excuse me, that out. It's always on the first day, though. So how come on Pesach, you only say Havel one time? For the whole seven days, one, one, one time. But on Chag, on Sukkot, we say Havel every single day. So the Gemara gives a very interesting answer. The Gemara answers, Shekeda Chalukin Bekarben Oteya. Gemara says that, there's a difference between Sukkot and Pesach. Sukkot, every day of Sukkot, 
there are a different number of sacrifices that are brought. So it means the holiday of Sukkot, each day is distinct. But the holiday of Pesach is the same sacrifices every single day. So in a certain sense, that means that the, the day is a seven-day, the holiday is a seven-day time frame. No distinctions between one day and the next. So what it sounds like is, if you said it the first day, you cover yourself for all, for all seven days. But Sukkot is different, each day is distinct. Each day the number of sacrifices actually decreases by one. Parei Achag, I mentioned this on Sunday, that's the opinion of Beit Shammai actually, that every day the, the Mahajan had one less candle every day. Because on the Sukkot there's one less sacrifice every day. Gemara says, right, so the Gemara, that, that's the first, that's as far as Pesach is concerned. Okay. The Gemara's explanation, that's not to say it's the only explanation. There may be other reasons as well, just to cite the Gemara, which is very important. Gemara's next question is, how about Shabbos? How come we don't say Shabbos, <coughs> how come we don't say Halal on Shabbos? Gemara says, well, we can remote. Shabbos is different. Shabbos is not a special occasion. <coughs> Howl is recited on special occasions, and Shabbos is every seven days, fixed. What about Rosh Chodesh? Mar says, Rosh Chodesh, we don't say Howl. It's called a Moe. How come we don't... So the Gemara's answer to that is, no. You only say Howl on days where there's some kind of sanctity to the day. So Rosh Chodesh, even though it's a festival, but it has no sanctity. That is to say, you're permitted to do work on, on Rosh Chodesh. So therefore, there's no halal on Rosh Chodesh. Okay. Mar's next question is, <coughs> okay, what about Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? There it is a special day, two special days, and it is forbidden to work, and it's a moed. So how come on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur we don't say halal? So the Gemara says, Essentially, because of the solemnity of the day, the day of life and death is before us, it's not a day where Hallel would be appropriate, right? Can't, now, the, the, the term that the Gemara uses for Hallel, very important, we'll see, critical to all of that, it calls Hallel Shira. Hallel is called Saul. That's very important. You don't say Shira on Rosh Hashanah and Yom, and Yom Kippur. Right. We do say on Rosh Chodesh, so what do I need to We don't. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. We don't actually, we don't say Halal on Rosh Chodesh. When we say on Rosh Chodesh, we also say on the intermediate days of Pesach too. We say a, part, a portion of the Halal, which the Gemara calls Chatsi Halal. Chatsi Halal, Gemara Tal. Halal, to half, what's it called? Half Halal is called? Chatsi Halal? Partial Halal? The Gemara says it's not actually halal at all. It's a custom. Rav traveled. Rav was in Bavel when he first came to Bavel. He went to Shul. It was Rosh Chodesh. They were started hearing him say halal. He was going to stop them. Then he saw they skipped. They didn't say all of it. They skipped part of it. So he uh, he said, oh, must have a custom in Bavel to say these uh, these portions of halal on Rosh Chodesh. But that when they, they speak of halal. They're talking about what we call the whole halal, which we'll get to. Question. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we started with the Babri, does it mean that there are no um, mention uh, dealing with this problem in Palestinian? No, it's there too. It's in the Yerushalmi as well. 
But here it's laid out in very straightforward form. Now the Yushami knows about it. There's no distinction there. Okay. <coughs> now, Gemara says, <coughs> fine, the Gemara says, how about Hanukkah? Because Hanukkah is not even in the Torah. <coughs> it's certainly permissible to do work on Hanukkah. Right? So the Gemara says, Misham Nisa. The holiday of Hanukkah is different. We're saying, how well, because the Nisa, it's a miracle, the miracle of Hanukkah, so that's different. That's not the day itself that obligates one to say how well, it's the miracle. So the Gemara asks the question, if it's a miracle, how about Purim? It's also a miracle. How about Purim, right? To which the Gemara has three different answers. Why don't we say how on Purim? That's what I wanted to talk about a bit. This will take us to all kinds of interesting places, I believe, in terms of the Megillah, in terms of the text, in terms of non-text. It's one big session this afternoon and tomorrow morning hopefully we'll get to all the points I have to, you can't just talk for five hours I have to give you something mm-hmm. to do as well the Gemara has three reasons in the, why we don't say hollow on three different reasons the first reason the Gemara says is because I'm Rabbi Yitzchak Gufishen Omrim Shira Al Neitz Shebechutz Laretz the first answer is that a miracle which takes place outside the land, Purim is a story that takes place in exile, so there's no, there's no Hava. You only say mir- on those things that happened in the land, Hanukkah, but outside the land there's no Hava. That's number one. First answer. Mara says, what are you talking about? Pesach took place outside the land, uh-huh. right? So, it's yet Mitzrayim. And we're saying how on the first day of Pesach? Gemara says, no, that's different. That's because we never got to the land yet. Okay. If you didn't get there, then you can still say hollow. But if once you're in the land, you never say hollow on any miracle that takes place outside the land. But that's the first answer the Gemara gives. The second answer the Gemara gives, it's the one that interests me actually, Rav Nachman Amar, Kriyata Zohi Hilula. So the Gemara is a different answer. The reading of the Megillah itself is hollow. That's what actually interests me here. The reading of the Megillah is hollow. What, is, what does that mean? It can be understood in the way it's normally understood, I think. Kriyata Zoe Hihula means you don't say hollow. You can't say hollow on Purim because the Megillah is the most you can say. In other words, the Megillah, which is a book, book that describes, I mean, one way to understand it, in other words, when the Gemara says that the Megillah is the hollow of Purim, it can be taken two different ways. One is from a negative standpoint. The most you can say is that if you read the Megillah, you can't, the Megillah is, is the story, so the text, the text of hollow for Purim is not the normal hollow. The text of hollow for Purim is the Megillah. But you have to understand what kind of a text of hollow is the Megillah. The Megillah doesn't sound like a text of hollow. It doesn't sound like a set of praises of God. It would be hard to see the Megillah as a set of praises for God, since God is never mentioned in the Megillah. Now we never met, God never speaks in the Megillah, and God is never actually mentioned in the Megillah. So what would it mean to say that the Hallel, that the Megillah is a kind of Hallel? Well, you could take it. That's what it's saying in effect is, no, when you read the Megillah, you can't say Hallel. How could you say Hallel in the Megillah? There's nobody to say Hallel too. So Kriyata, instead of Hallel, we say the Megillah. That's one way to read it. 
And another way to read it is, which I want to push for, is that when they, is that the Megillah is a kind of hawa. That's what I wanted to explore. So, but but can't you say that the whole davening of Rosh Hashanah is a, a hawa? Well, you could say that, but Rosh Hashanah sounds like it's Rosh. Well, the question. We have the Malchiots. Malchiots, Zichronot, and Shofrot, which I. It sounds more like. I mean, what the Gemara says is that Rosh Hashanah is more about judgment. And it sees judgment and uh, reckoning and those kinds of things as antithetical to to Havel. <coughs> we'll see. Because it's too solemn. Havel sounds like it's connected in some sense some kind of joy. And in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, sounds like the joy is muted because of the seriousness, solemnity of, of, of the day. That's, anyway, that's the second answer the Gemara gives about why we don't say Hal on Purim. And the third answer, third answer is, you can't say Hal on Purim, because the Hal begins with the words, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Abdei Hashem. Praise God, the ser- praise God, the servants of the Lord, Abdei Hashem. But we're not God's slaves, we're not God's servants, we're still Achashverosh's servants. In the Megillah, it describes the world of Achashverosh. He's the king, he has this ultimate power. So if you're serving Achashverosh, it's not the same as Egypt. We left Egypt, we were Pharaoh's servants. And God said, But Akati Abri Achashverosh Anan was still Achashverosh's servants, so we can't say Havel. It's mutually exclusive. You can't be God's servant and Achashverosh's servant at the same time. That, my friends, is the sugya in Masechah Zarachim concerning Havel. That's the, yeah. Yes? Uh, going back to the, the original question, what about Hanukkah? Yes. 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 We can yes. obviate all of the all of these questions by saying this the simple answer, what about Hanukkah, which is purely historically, it's clear from the second book of Maccabees that that Hanukkah is Sukkot. And one of the ways in which it's Sukkot is eight days, eight days, and Halal every day. So there certainly is a connection between those two. Th- that's the easiest answer. The, the, the other answers are kind of convoluted. That's a purely simple, accurate historical answer. Well, the question is, what do you mean by accurate historical? I don't actually, I don't actually believe that. Tell you the truth. In other words, I think that's it. Does say the Maccabees? That's true. There are many commonalities between Sukkot and Hanukkah. That's what I talked about on Sunday. There are many. I don't actually buy it. I'm not sure it says the Maccabees either. By the way, you have to look more carefully. Maccabees. I've been looking at. It doesn't say about Hallel. No, no. I'm not sure it actually says that the eight-day holiday festival of Hanukkah. It does say they didn't do Sukkot that year and they did Hanukkah. But I don't actually believe, even with Maccabees, that that's what Hanukkah is actually about. I don't believe the eight days are because of Sukkot. I don't believe that's true. I believe it's something else. But in any event... By the way, who said this third opinion? This is, it's stated, also the Gemara, the author of this one is uh, Rava. Rava is the one who says, it's in Baba, Rava says, Ha'u Abdei Hashem, these are the opinions. So, this is not this is my way of introduction to what I wanted to study. 
for this afternoon and uh, tomorrow morning. And that is to... I would start with Havel, actually. It's simplest to start with Havel, and then we'll move from Havel to the idea of a text in general. But let's just start with Havel, because Havel is, for Hanukkah anyway, one of the two central observances of, of Hanukkah. Hanukkah has two observances. One is the lighting of the candles. And the other is, as we say in our Hanisim, the Kavu Yimei Shmolet Yimei Chanukah Elu, Lodotu Lahalel Ushimcha Gadol. That's the festival of Hanukkah, was set aside as those eight days, Lodotu Lahalel Ushimcha, to the Hodot, would mean to, to thank, or to acknowledge, and Lahalel was to praise. So these eight days are days of acknowledgement and praise. And we are fulfilling this obligation to acknowledge and praise through the recitation of a piece of liturgy that we call Havel. So I just by way of introduction, we have to stop at 2.15 for Mincha and, and 25 minutes. I will introduce this whole thing with a brief discussion of Havel. And around Havel, we will focus and see some things which I think are extraordinarily <coughs> interesting. In fact, this session this afternoon is, I'm, I just coming out soon with a commentary on Megillah Esther, which is, this one's going to be in Hebrew, and not, not an easy Hebrew either. It's written very, very beautiful Hebrew. I didn't write it, but my associate uh, colleague right, wrote it. It's my uh, Torah. And I make a claim in that book about Megillah Esther. I disagree with it, but I think it's an extraordinarily interesting claim, and I wanted to put that forward this uh, afternoon. I think that's what the Gemara may mean when it says, Kriyata Zoe Hihulah. Before we get to that claim, I want just to focus in on Halal itself. What, what is Halal? Let's start with that. The 18 days we say Halal, of course, it's correct, we say Chati Halal, other days as well, Rosh Chodesh, Cholomoy, Pesach, etc. Halal, if a praise of God, liturgical praise, consists of six psalms. Very straightforward. There are six psalms that we say when we say Havel. There are Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 118, and we have it in the Tanachim. So, six psalms, six psalms of praise. Now, the question of these six psalms of praise is the following. They are six separate kapichich tilim. We say six separate psalms. The question is, is there actually some, something going on in these six psalms apart from six discrete psalms. So I believe that actually within these six psalms is a story. The story is particularly relevant to Hanukkah, actually, which is why, because when you see Halel, by the way, what jumps out from the, in terms of our practice, what is stunning is actually Hanukkah. The others are not surprising. In other words, the other recitations of Halel are very straightforward. It's the Shorosh Regalim. On the three festivals that we have, we are saying Havel. Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. The only difference is Sukkot, we say it every day. And Pesach, we always say it the first day. But basically, it's the Shalosh Regalim. But what is striking is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not in the Torah, obviously. It's a rabbinic day. And the idea that you say on Hanukkah more Havel than you say on Pesach is very striking. True, there is the connection to Sukkot, no doubt. But I think it's beyond that. There's actually something else over here. Now, so there are six psalms. What's Im- interesting to think about in terms of these six psalms is that 
there is one other time when we say Havel, which is uh, on the night of Passover. On the night of Passover at the Seder. <coughs> there is a custom, by the way, to say Havel in Shul on the first night of Passover. <coughs> We're leaving that out. But all traditional Jews are saying Havel at the Seder. But the way it's recited at the Seder is very strange, actually. Because we split it into two pieces. So, how do you split it is the question. So, this splitting it into two pieces is already in the Mishnah. <coughs> but there's a disagreement in the Mishnah what you do. Our practice follows the view of Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel split the hollow into two pieces. Beit Hillel split it into the first two Psalms, which is Psalm 113 and 114. That's recited before we eat. That's the end of the first half of the Seder. It's actually called Magid. It's Eid Yisrael Mim Okay? And then we eat the meal. Matzah, the Mara, the meal. After the meal, we begin with the last four Psalms. Psalm 115. Okay? So that itself is interesting this idea of splitting the hollow into two pieces. What is that actually about? Before I get to that, we should all open up our Tanachim, and I want to show you something, which, you know, most of you probably know this, but just want to point something out to you about hollow. So this is in the book of Psalms, Tiwim. Everybody needs, all we need for this class is a Tanach. Nothing else is required. Would you mind passing that one? Oh, okay. Not at all. Here you go. Thank you very much. Thank you. There's another one here. Everybody needs a Tanakh. Psalm 113 is on page 1,500 or 600. 1,000, yeah, 1,556. Right? I want you to see something over here, which is... I want you to see something. 1556. You see, it says Kufir Gimel, that's Psalm 113. 1557, Psalm 114. Now look at 15, the, bottom, the middle of 1557. Okay. Psalm, you see, it starts with Lolanu Hashem You see? And it ends towards the bottom of 1558, Hashem Zecharanu You see that? Yes. You don't see it? 1558, okay? 1550, and the bottom starts mm-hmm. and it ends on the top of 1560 mm-hmm. So I want to point out something that's not obvious if you dive in from a sitter many of the siddurim are very misleading when you say you say chasi halal and Moshkosh we say half halal what does it mean half halal? half halal means that two of the six psalms, you're skipping the first half of them. When you open up a sitter, you can't tell this to be the case. Most people think there are a bunch of psalms. You say all of them on, on say, on Sukkot. And Rosh Chodesh, you say only some of them. That's not accurate. The fact that you say some as opposed to all is that you two of the six on the days of Chati Havel, you're actually not saying the whole psalm. You're saying pieces of the song. 
In other words, that's actually a very interesting point. In other words, Chatsi Havel actually, you're actually, you're actually skipping pieces of Psalms. That is to say, if the mitzvah is we crow at the Havel, to read the Havel, okay? That's a blessing on Havel, we crow at the Havel. There's something deficient in the Kriya of Chatsi Havel. So like, you're, not, you're not just choosing six instead of eight. You're choosing four plus two halves. So you're not reading it consecutively. You're, you're missing something. The full halal is the real halal. The other is a remembrance of halal. It's not the actual halal. Okay. So this is the... These are the six psalms. Now, Psalm 117 is only two verses, the shortest psalm we have. Psalm 118 is the concluding psalm of the, uh, of the halal. Let me begin a little study by pointing out that the hollow as we know it is known in rabbinic uh, in rabbinic uh, texts when it refers to hollow typically it's called hollow hamitri this hollow 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 we call hollow the, the whole the, the whole thing the six psalms what we call hollow are known in rabbinic language you'll see it quoted all the time hollow hamitri as opposed to, for example, another halal, which is Psalm 136, that we say, for example, Shabbat morning, Hodu Hashem Kitov Kiriram Chastol, which is known in the tradition as Halel Hagadol, the great halal. So there's Halel HaMitzri and there's Halel Hagadol. At the Seder, we say both of them, actually. We say two psalms before, we say four after, and we say Hodu afterwards, Halel Hagadol. So, I wanted to begin by reflecting upon the idea of Halal HaMitzri. Why is this Halal called Halal HaMitzri? The Egyptian Halal. Why is it called Halal HaMitzri? <coughs> I think there are two potential ways to respond to this question. The first is to give a very simple, I don't mean it's wrong, but a very simple answer, which I don't think is the answer typically given, but I don't think it actually fully captures it. And that is that this particular Halal the second psalm, in fact, the psalm that we recite at the Seder before we, before we eat, actually, is the psalm B'Tzeit Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim. That's how we actually end the first half of the Seder. That part is called Magid. Magid, Haggadah. Telling of the story, we are ending that section at the Seder with the recitation of the first piece of Haggadah. And we end it with B'Tzeit Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim. So we say, we actually in this psalm mention the exodus from Egypt. So therefore, some believe, that's why we call the six psalms, all six of them, Halal HaMitzri. The difficulty with this explanation, obviously, is that it doesn't actually explain why the six psalms are called Halal HaMitzri. In fact, that one of the six psalms begins, B'Tzeit Yisraeli Mitzrayim, hardly would suggest to us and we would call the, the entire halal in its entirety halal ha-mitzri. And therefore, there must be, or there could be in any event, a different explanation as to why we call halal halal ha-mitzri. And I believe the explanation is important for us and says something, says a lot about what this halal is about and uh, will move us, in, I think, in several very interesting places. But let me just say the following, that actually, 
the last psalm is what's, I think, very significant. The last psalm, Psalm 118, which it begins with a call, with a, someone's calling to us, this is like a speaker, and the person who's speaking here is instructing us to Hodu Hashem Kitov, to be acknowledge that God is good, be grateful that God is good. Yomano Yisrael, Yomano Beit Aron, Yomano Yirei Hashem. There's a instructions being given to different groups of people to make a statement that God is gracious, good. Ki Yoram Chasto. And then, beginning on page 1560, we begin with the main section of the last of the Psalms of Hallel, the conclusion of Hallel, and it begins with the Pasuk, this actually is, I think, very important uh, in terms of understanding, first of all, why it's called Hawa Mitzri. <coughs> Secondly, what it's actually about. Even Mina Mitzar, Mitzar is, of course, Mitzar is plays off Mitzrayim. Mitzar means the narrow spaces. The Hasidic texts love to talk about Minamezar as being connected to Mitzrayim. The fact that the Hasidic texts happen to say this does not mean that it's not the plain pshat, which of course it is. Minamezar karati ya actually is clearly, I believe, recalling Mitzrayim. Minamezar karati ya, I call you God from the narrow places. Onani bamerchav ya answer me bamerchav. What's a merchav mean? What's mer What's merchav mean? No, rachav is what? What's rachav is broad, broad, broad way, right? In other words, the narrow spaces, and then there's the broad way, the merchav. In fact, if you think about when God first speaks to Moshe by taking us out of Egypt, which is the story of the burning bush. God says, I have seen, says God in chapter 3 of Exodus, the suffering of my people in Mitzrayim. I've heard their cries. I'm going to go down, says God, into Egypt, in that place, and bring them up to bring them to a good and a broad land. So right there you have it, actually. You have the contrast between going down to Mitzrayim and God's intention to bring us Eretz Tova Ur. By the way, this idea of Mitzrayim in contrast Eretz Tova Ur Chava, we say it all the time. It's the beginning of the second blessing of Berkat Hamazon. No Delecha Hashem Elokeinu Ashen Chalta Ravoteinu Eretz Chemda Tova Ur Chava Vial. What they tell me Mitzrayim. We say it every day. All the time. The contrast in Mitzar, Mitzrayim, and Eretz Merachav. So, in other words, Psalm 118 is actually very, begins with the following Mitzar Karatika is a personal statement. God, I call to you from my personal narrow spaces. Whatever that means, we can talk about. Answer me by Merachav with enlargement. Give me, give me an opportunity to, to, to leave these narrow spaces. That's how the psalm actually begins. <coughs> and the question here is, what is, 
What is the story? What is this? This person is crying out to God, Anani Bamerech and this beginning in verse number, was it five? Yeah. Five. Till the end, there's an interesting story that's taking place. And before we just break very briefly, for Mincha, I want to point out the following. That in this psalm, which is Psalm 118, that we are saying, anybody who prays and says hallow says this all the time. We say many things all the time. We don't necessarily actually think too much about the significance of what we are saying. In this particular psalm, there is something very striking. And that is, after a description of what it means, what it, this narrator is speaking, describing about being in a narrow space, and when you read it, you see, for example, in the following verses, Narrow spaces means, among other things, being surrounded. For example, on the bottom of page 1560, All the nations svavuni, they're surrounding me. And then on top of page 1561, verse number 11, Not only svavuni, but sabuni gam svavuni, totally surrounded. Then the next verse, Sabuni Kidvorim, they have beset me like bees, or probably, probably hornets. You know, when they attack you, have you been attacked by bees? One of my kids were attacked by bees years ago. They come in swarms. There's no, you can't escape it, I mean. One get it, 50, 50 bites in about one minute. They just to surround you, you can't get away from it. They have pressed me hard to knock me down. Bashem Ozorani. And then we have verse 14. That's a very important verse. It's one of the keys here. See that verse? Verse 14. Everybody see that verse? What strikes you about the verse? Forget what it means. Zimra is possible. Zimra probably doesn't mean strong here. Probably means strength. But it doesn't matter. What is it? Alliteration. You're thinking too deeply. You help us out. It's a citation from the Torah. The composer of this psalm has simply cited a biblical verse. That's the key to understanding everything here, by the way. Is a verse from Shirat Hayam. It's the beginning of the Song of the Sea. Now let me just let me just set out the, the, the thinking here for the, this afternoon's little session. Harel is called Shira. Gemara called it Shira in many places. We have in our tradition a great one great song in the Jewish tradition, which is the Song of the Sea. Shirat Hayam is our great song. The claim I want to make is twofold this afternoon. First is that the Harel that we say essentially is playing off Shiratayam. Now when I say it's playing off Shiratayam, the first thing we look for always is the language. That the language of Havel is the language is drawn from to some degree from Shiratayam. And then we have to understand what does that mean? I mean so okay, if the language is similar, what is it actually saying about Havel? That's number one. And the second point I wanted to make, part two, is that Megillat Esther actually 
is playing out, is coming out of Shiratayam. Who would even think of such a thing? You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, to, not to toot my own horn, but in a million years, who would you? And by the way, after I say it, you'll say, obviously. Of course, it's cheap though, you know what I mean? And this actually is very interesting because what it affords us is a different way to read the Megillah. So even though the, even the Hanukkah, Hanukkah and Purim are joined at the hip, they're very different. And we'll see tomorrow, in a way, they're the opposite. <coughs> but. They're both, in a certain sense, one can read the Megillah that way. One can read the Megillah as coming out of Shiratayam. The Megillah is, a, is a, a kind of song, and of course this would suggest a certain reading of the Megillah, which is far from obvious, and I'm not suggesting it's the only reading of the Megillah. I think it's a way to read the Megillah. There's more than one way. I'm not suggesting there's just one way. The Megillah is written in such a way that it lends itself to multiple ways of reading. In any event, this verse... So what got me thinking many years ago, and let's just, let's just read a little more. We have a five minutes before we break for Mincha, and then we'll get into this in depth, and I'll give you some work to do on your own too. So what after all the... But look at how it continues. It continues this way. Verse number, fif- verse number 15 on page 1561. Kol Rinah means call means the sound of or sometimes it can mean hark sometimes it's translated hark bending but let's say the sound of the cry of right those who have been vindicated right tzaddik is one who's been vindicated a righteous person in the tense of the righteous Call Rina of Yeshua. I hear the cry of Rina of crying out in redemption in the tents of the righteous. And what am I hearing? What, am, what is the sound that this person is hearing? The person is hearing the following words Yemin Hashem Osechayo. Yemin Hashem Romema. Yemin Hashem Osechayo. So this is a story over here. Someone has been redeemed. Someone feels personally. They've been taken out of some very narrow, very narrow places. And Ozi Vizimrat God has been my strength. God is my salvation. And suddenly, in the next verse, this person is saying, I hear the cries of joy and of redemption in the tents of the righteous. And what are they saying in those tents? They are saying the following. Yimin Hashem Osechayim, Yimin Hashem Romeima, Yimin Hashem Osechayim. So the two observations before we break for Mincha, which is this. First of all, Yimin Hashem Osechayim, Yimin Hashem Romeima, Yimin Hashem Osechayim is a pattern. ABA. The pattern is ABA. Yimin Hashem Osechayim, Yimin Hashem Romeima, Yimin Hashem Osechayim. Whenever you have an ABA pattern, what you underline is B. The, the two, the, the, the envelopes, it's like a picture. You have a nice frame. What's in the middle is the key. So what's in the key is Yimin Hashem Romeima. You have to understand that. What's Yimin, why is Yimin Hashem Romeima so important? It's the critical phrase of this psalm. What is that about? But the second thing that's interesting is the following. You have a triple over here. The right hand of God. Right? 
Yemin Hashem, God's right hand, Osechayo. Yemin Hashem, Romeima. Yemin Hashem, Osechayo. I believe there is only one other place in the Bible where we have the triple use of Yemin Hashem. Take a wild guess what it might be. Of course, where is it? Yaz Yashir. Yes, I'll be doing I'll be two minutes of it. So one is the Song of the Sea. So this chapter. By the way, you don't have to trust the word I say. You look at yourself, you'll see. Chapter 15, Oz Yashir. Yemin Hashem Nedari Bakoach. Yemin Hashem Tiratzo Yev. That's twice. And read a little more. It's got to be there. I knew it was there before I even started, by the way. Natita Yemincha Tivlaemo Ares. So the, the salvation, God's salvation in Shiratayan is attributed to God's right, God's right side, right hand, and it's three times. So this is the other place you have Yemin Hashem. We just read Ozi Vizimrat Yava Yilishua. It's just a citation from Shiratayam. And now we discover something else. That Yemin Hashem appears three times, and there's something additional to that, which is apparently the key is Yemin Hashem Romema. So we'll break stuff from Mincha, we'll get the, I think it's two million or whatever, and then we will discuss this idea of Yemin Hashem Romema. We're trying to uncover a story over here, a very exciting story of Havel. Not, we don't usually see it that way. We're usually reading six so discrete psalms. There is a story. What? No, I'm not giving it. <laughs> there is a story, but it's not just a story. It's something which is a deeply religious idea about Havel. And it's also very much connected to the Seder, of course, but it's, it's, it's really deeply connected to Hanukkah. And then we get through this, we'll see this, and I want to turn our attention to the Megillah. Kriyata Zawihi That will be very... So I'm all excited about this, even though I've thought about this for a very long time. We'll see if it's nice or not. So we're up to the... Yeah. So we noticed here in Hallel... We have this triple here. Yemin Hashem, he's hearing, this person is hearing some kind of a sound of Rina Vishua, Yalei Tzadikim. They're saying something. Yemin Hashem Osechayu, Yemin Hashem Romeimo, Yemin Hashem Osechayu. So it's like a song within a song. It is. It still has the sound of a song to it, but so Yemin Hashem Romeimah is the one we look at. Right? ABA. So it'll always be. So what is Yemin Hashem <coughs> So actually, when you look at the Chumash, Shiratayam, <coughs> see the, the intertext that we speak of nowadays, where one text plays off another, is not confined just to the narrative. It's a very important point. You could have it with the poetry as well. This is a good example of that. So in Shirat Hayam, chapter 15, Oz Yashir Moshe, Shirul Hashem, right? And it begins, second verse on page 144, Ozi Zimrat Ya, Vahili Lishua, Ze'eli Vianveyu, Elohei Aviva Romimenu. So the first half of the verse, everybody see this? The first half of the verse, by the way, you're permitted to sit at the table over here if you want. It's not, 
It's the table. It's, that's why it's a table. It's more comfortable. <laughs> Permissible. Uh, the first half, what's interesting is, Haziv Zimrat Yah is the first half of the verse. It's in the Hawel. It's the first half of verse number two. But the second half of verse number two is not in the Hawel. The second half of verse number two is, Zay Levi Anveyu so what's interesting is the second half of the verse, Zei li v'yanveyu, Elohei avi v'arom menu. So first of all, we notice right away that the second half of the verse contains the word romen, to exalt, right? It's curious though, what does this verse actually mean? Zei li v'yanveyu, Elohei avi v'arom menu. What does v'yanveyu mean? It's actually interesting. It's a difficult expression. Actually, the plain, the plain, right, so beautify is the rabbinic explanation. In other words, the source in the Talmud of doing mitzvot in a beautiful way, which is known as Hidur Mitzvah, one of the sources in the Talmud is this verse. Zei and the Talmud comments, mitzvot, do mitzvot in a beautiful way. It's called Hidur Mitzvah. The festival in which Hidur Mitzvah stands out more than any other is Hanukkah. Mahadrin minah Mahadrin. Hanukkah's. But that's not, I don't think, the plain meaning of the verse, actually. I don't think Vianveyu means beautify. Let's see what the JPS translation says. Um, enshrine him, I think, is not bad, actually. Glorify, enshrine the word v'yanveyu, I believe, is related to the Hebrew word naveh, nun vavhei, which appears in Shirat Hayam. Right? <coughs> For example, we have it in Shirat Hayam, in verse number 13. Nachita bechas techam zuga alta, nehalta biyazcha el nevei kachecha. Nevei kachecha naveh is a house, essentially, right? a home, a house, right? A habitation where people live. can be read and translated the following way. So JPS basically says, this is my God, I will find for God a house. This is my God, I will exhort. In other words, one way to read the verse, which is, I think, how the psalmist read it, is this way. Someone who is delivered, someone who's been redeemed, right? Kriyat Yamsuf, we, we, we cross the sea. We sang a song of redemption, of grace, gratitude, whatever. So it says the following, it says, I'm, if I was saved, I'm going to thank God for my personal deliverance. But, I want to do more than that. I want to build for this God a house, and in this house, I will exalt God. In other words, the point being that there's a difference between, there's two kinds of praises one can give in terms of gratitude. One is a personal praise. God is my redeemer, my strength, or whatever. But more than that, I want to do more than that. I want to thank God, not just in my own little space, but I wanted to thank God in my, in my house. The house being a public space. So we go back to the Mishkan? We go back, well, we go back to 
Yes, the Mishkan is the public space, but the, the, the point I'm making about what the way I think the Hallel understands this story is someone was redeemed. Minameta Karatika. I was my own personal problems. God, I see that God has answered me, taken me out of my little narrow spaces to a broader space. Of course, I, I'm grateful. But then, the story is, This person hears, the te- in the tents of the righteous, they are saying things about God. They are exalting God in the tents of the righteous. So then, if that's the case, if there's a, a space where other people have joined to exalt God, then I feel I have to go to that space. Because only in that space can I actually, it's not enough for me to thank God personally. The idea of hollow is that I want to tell somebody else. Now this is something which is, the most who understand this very well actually, I mean it's in the Psalms, but some of the evangelicals understand this very perfectly well. In fact, I had my own experience myself. I was on an airplane, reading my, exactly this publish, and what I was studying, and next to me there was this couple, hard evangelicals, I mean hardcore, actually. And I give them a certain amount of credit, because I said, where do you live? Where we? They said, well, we're moving to a different town. I said, why are you moving to a different town? Because there's a very important teacher in that town. We're picking Ooh. up and going there. Yeah. That was... The mother says it. Achim Rebbe, Rebbe, Lezim, you know? I'm searching for Rebbe. You know, that's which is called Kavod. So that's... We have plenty to learn from these people, by the way. But that's beside the separate... So, I'm talking, and this guy... They were fascinated with the Bible, because they, you know, they're very into the language and everything. They said a lot of stuff to me, which... I don't want to start <laughs> correcting them, you know what I mean? With the mistakes, right? Anyway, the point is that... So I'm reading this thing... And then this guy gets up, he's walking around, whatever, and this woman is sitting next to me, his wife. She says, you know, I was, I was on the street, I was this, with drugs. I want, you to, I want you to hear my story, how I was redeemed. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know. It's exactly, I want to tell my story. I'm so grateful that I was, God delivered me, and I want to tell you that. I want to testify, but, to testify about, to God's goodness. I mean, right. how well is exactly that way? What, what's the next verse? This guy is hearing, Right? This, 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 the narrator is hearing, I hear that in the tents of the righteous, and they're saying something. They're exalting God. And that in the Song of the Sea is after you build God's house. So therefore, since that what this, that's what this person is, uh, is hearing, the next verse, of course, which is very important, is... And the house shall the house? We'll, 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 get, we'll get there. We'll get, we'll see. We'll, of course it is. Of course. Once you see this, you see the, it's very clear. We'll see. It's quite interesting things here. But before you, even before you get there, the next verse is So the person says, I'm, I haven't died. Right? I'm living. If I'm alive, I have to say, you know, it's funny, the night of Pesach, we're saying Havel. There's a mitzvah Pesach night. Haggadah calls the mitzvah Pesach night, Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. So there's actually two kinds of Sipur. 
you begin by telling the story. We were slaves in Egypt, God took us out of Egypt, the ten plagues, that's one kind of seaport. But then, you're also saying thank you. Your praises, the Hallel. And the last chapter of the Hallel, I have to tell my story. Well, I have to tell it to other people. So what better place to tell the story than the tents of those people that are telling their stories to each other? The Ole Tzadikim. It's the place where people join together. Read it, call Rina Vishua. Be Ole Tzadikim. So I'm going to go to that place. But there are more than one tent. Ole Tzadikim, the tents, okay. No, no, that's, that's relevant here because if you're talking about going to one place where many people can gather, it <coughs> the tents of the Tzadikim. Well, I presume that the tents have more than one person in the tent, so as, as we'll see. I mean, you're, you're right, there may be more than one tent. And that's actually an important point. Yeah, I'll tell you why it's an important point. I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's important. Because the truth of the matter is that this theme appears earlier in the Hallel. It appears earlier in the Hallel. The same theme, but there's a little different. This is even more amazing. But the same theme appears earlier in one of the truly spectacular psalms that we have, Psalm 116, which begins... In this translation, on page 1,558, my, one of my favorite psalms, personally, that's, it. that's how it begins. Someone is talking about his own experience, right? God hears my prayers. And then on 1,559, right? Be at rest, my soul. God has been good to you. I have been delivered from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before God in the land of the living. Right? I had my doubts. I said rashly once, but I've been redeemed. Right? That's, that's, that's the first half of the psalm. So in the next verse, verse number 12, The question, very good question, how can I repay what God has done to me? That's the question. How can you repay it? Well, what can I do? For me, right? What is God? What God has done for me, God has redeemed me. How do I repay this? What, what do I do? So the answer the psalmist gives is the following. I raise up the cup of salvation. I cry out in God's name. Torah says that Abraham, when he built the altar, which is understood by many to mean he proclaimed God to the world. So I'm going to raise up the cup of salvation and proclaim God. Then the psalmist continues. I will repay my vows before all of the people. Not just privately. I'm going to publicly, actually, repay my vow. And what is the vow? Right? He continues, led to the end of the psalm, I will bring you a sacrifice of todah, a thanksgiving sacrifice, and proclaim God. I will do this publicly. Where? In the courtyards of God. 
That's actually awesome, really. Yeah. It means in, in the temple. It means the temple being the public space. So this, this idea, the question is, how can I repay? It's always a very good question. What, what can you do, you know? And you pay forward. Pay forward. Exactly. Because you can't. What can you do? My, when my wife, years, three, four years ago, donated a kidney to a total stranger. Total. In Israel. Total. She always wanted to do that. So the people wanted to give us gifts. We wouldn't, we wouldn't take anything. <coughs> so the last day she went to them. She said, listen, you can't give me. What are you going to give me? I'm not interested anyway. So I'll tell you what. In your life, you'll have an opportunity to help somebody else. So remember if someone helped you. That's all. It's very simple. It's very, it's very straightforward, obviously, you know. Don't give me anything. What, what, what can you give anyway? What, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Give me money because I gave you my kidney? It makes no sense, you know what I mean? But you can pay for it. The point is, if you, someone helped you out, how do you express gratitude? That's the point. And the point of the psalmist is very simple. You express it publicly. But publicly here is actually in Jerusalem. Because that's the temple. But what's interesting is Psalm 118, there's no particular space. In Psalm 118, it's not a Yerushalayim, but it's searching for the, uh, some space where people gather, where this person can tell a story, basically. But now the search, but where is the place? Jerusalem, we know where it is. So this is a very defined place, you can go. But the point about Psalm 118 is that it's not a defined place. Nor is the, whatever happens, it's not clear. Minameta, there's some kind of distress, narrow space. So, now, but he hears, this person is hearing, Ole Tzadikim. Ah, and now the journey to find the place. You have to find that place. The search goes on to find the place. So now, as you said before, someone said before, he talks about the gates. Open up those gates. Let's know where the gates are. Open up the gates. Shari Tzedek. That I can be modem. Modem means to thank or to acknowledge. He's searching for the gates. He talked about the oil. Now he's talking about yeah. Now he's talking about the gates. The, the right. The only only tzadikim. Right. Tzadikim yavovo. So they're in an oil, but there must be a char. There must be a gate. So you have the imagery of the house and the gate and the tent. And now it's interesting. Beginning in verse twenty-one. We know that the verb odeh is the word that, right? Odchaki anitani batili lishua Evan masu abonim haitala rosh pina Meyet Hashem haitazot in the flat b'yeinenu Zayom masu Hashem nagilo v'nismechavo So this is what, this is what the, I would say, he's rehearsing maybe his prayer. Odchaki anisani I was, I was Eben Masu Abonim, right? So this is interesting. In other words, it sounds like he's been redeemed. The difficulty here is, and I raise this as a question to think about, is the next verse, actually. Ana Hashem Hoshiana, Ana Hashem Atzrichana. It's actually very strange. What do you mean, Ana Hashem Hoshiana? He just told us he's been redeemed, he's been delivered. What's Ana Hashem Hoshiana? Ana Hashem Atzlichana. The reason is a question, but here's what is very interesting, actually. The Hallel contains 
many verses that are typically sung. Truth is, the Hasidim, most of the Hasidim typically don't sing in the davening, actually. The songs the Hasidim composed, leave Shomo Kabach out of the picture. <coughs> the fact is, that the Hasidim wrote many, many, many different tunes for the prayers, but they don't actually say them in the davening. They sing them. Now, there are many Hasidic melodies for Pitzchuli Sharei Tzedek. And what's interesting is Majitz has at least three that I'm familiar with. Majitz is, could be a whole separate, there should be a separate, we should be talking about Hasidic music. Because the Hasidic music is different. Majitz is not Pretzlov, and it's not Chabad, and, and, and it's not Babov, and it's, it's all different. Melitz is different, Vishnus is different. And they're not just different tunes, they actually express a different worldview. Without question, the most beautiful, from a lyrical standpoint, it's nothing like it. It's much. It's, it's nothing like much. It's actually. I was as a kid. I spent a lot of time with with much. It's actually. It's actually, Benzir Shaker would died recently. Given it, made an unbelievable contribution. What's interesting about the Majitz and Nigunim, if you're not familiar with them, it's, it's a world of music. It's very beautiful. They pepitchui sharet sedek. One that I'm familiar with, and a bunch of them. They're all extremely plaintive. They're very beautiful, and they're very melancholy tunes. Or I would say meditative tunes, more than sad. They're very meditative tunes. They're not what you expect, because the words seem, and the tunes don't reflect any kind of sense of deliverance, actually. They much more are about a yearning, a searching, meditative tunes. And I take that very seriously. If all of the Hasidic, great Hasidic tunes are, for these, these uh, verses are meditative or plaintive, reflective, it means they understood this differently. If they didn't understand it as someone who's actually been redeemed. They understood it as somebody who was contemplating reflection who's imagining reflection. And truth of the matter is that it's a reflection upon the ultimate redemption. The truth is that biblical Hebrew plays with the tenses right and left. So the idea that I have been redeemed doesn't necessarily mean I've been redeemed. It could well mean I'm expecting redemption. Right? I expect it to happen. Because otherwise, Ona Hashem Oshi Ona, Ona Hashem Atzlich Ona, doesn't necessarily... Now, there's other ways to read it, I suppose. But I'm simply... I'm more raising the question about this. Someone is searching, someone is yearning. And now, when you come to the end of the Hallel in this psalm, suddenly... Or maybe... Or maybe the Ona Hashem Oshi Ona Hashem Atzlich is a prayer not so much for redemption, but maybe a prayer to find this, the place. The person is searching for something. The person feels a need, a deep religious need with Asapir Maaseya to tell the story. You only can tell the story in, in, in the public space. You know, if you're talking about human emotion and, and thanksgiving, but if you don't have Hoshiana, then you don't have, you're not completing it. Oh. Because there is cause for thankfulness, there's cause for hopefulness, but there's also tragedy. Right. 
There's no doubt. The question is, so even at the it, moment... To make, it, to make it complete, you must have on the Hashem. It's a, it's a deep thought, actually, what you're saying. I, I like it. But it could be, could be that part of the very sense of being redeemed is a sense that we still need redemption. That, that could well be the case. But this is the but the saying of the praise of God, which is which is what he's motivated to do, the praise of God amongst his people, his bottom line is he has learned from his redemption that's just happened to him that the key is on Hashem Hoshiana, on Hashem Hatzlichana, he's passing the key. Right. No, I agree. I agree. There's, it's a different formulation. I like that too. But the, the main point I wanted to make over here is actually the next verse. Because the next verse is very stunning. Baruch ha, someone is talking to him. Baruch Hashem mi Hashem. The person is searching. And suddenly someone says, Baruch haba, right? Say Baruch haba, so welcome someone. Yeah, right, right. Welcome. mi Hashem. We bless you from God's house. It sounded. It's God's house, right? In fact, there's a greeter, you know? If someone's greeting you, you found the house. Beit Hashem. He's searching for all eight tzaddikim. He wants the gates. And now, Beit Hashem, you are blessed from God's house. And they say, this greeter says, El Hashem this God has, has shown God's light upon us. Tie down the altar to the, to the, with, cord, with cords, to the altar with cords. You've come just in time. We're bringing a sack, right? He had talked earlier about bringing Zebach Todah. Odeh. Odeh can mean verbally to thank. It can mean to thank through sacrifice. You've come to the right place. You've come to the right address. Remember what he said, right? He wants, he must find the place in order to, right? In order to be Modeh, right? He says, in order to be modeh, right? However, he says, He wants to thank. And in the Chumash, Only in once he built the house, I will exhort God there. is only in the house. He found the house. So what's the next verse? Ewi atav yodeka evohai varoma meka. So obvious, isn't it? What <laughs> you see, it's so obvious. I, I can't even take credit for it, I'll tell you the truth, because it's siyata deshmaya. How could you even think of this? You know what I mean? It's obvious when you see it. It's exactly the verse. Zei levi anveyu evohai varoma meka. So exactly what he... Once you find the place. But, but let, me, let me get to the deeper point over here about Haro. There's something very deep about this point, about the recitation of Haro. The recitation of Haro in the story, it's a story over here, it's very simple. Haro is not a prayer, whether you need a minion or not, it's a separate question. But the Haro is, res- is recited responsibly. The way we say Haro is someone, there's a, someone talking to somebody else. It's a seaport. In other words, the night of Passover, we have the mitzvah, we call it seaport, you can see at Mitzrayim. The Haggadah itself says that to remember the exodus from Egypt, we do it every single day of the year. 
In fact, according to Ben Zoma, we do it twice a day. There's a fight in the Mishnah. Is it once a day or is it twice a day? Every single day of the year. It's called Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim. Ben Zoma complained. He said, all my life I've been fighting with the rabbis. They want to only remember the Exodus once a day. I told them it's twice a day. It's the day and the night. Until finally, Amr Rebbe Loza Ben Azariah, until Ben Zoma said, so we remember the Exodus in the morning and the night. We say the Shema in the morning, we say the Shema at night. Emet V'yatsiv in the morning, Emet V'muna at night. Gal Yisrael in the morning, Gal Yisrael at night. So if that's true, if there's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus every single night of the year, what's special about Passover night, the Seder? Every night you have to remember the Exodus. There's a difference. Every night you have to remember the Exodus. But only one night in a year is there a mitzvah of Sipur. And Sipur is the difference of Zechira and Sipur. Zechira you can do yourself, actually. You don't need another person to, to remember. But with Saper, you need another person. You have to tell somebody. So the Passover night, we are telling the story. That's the first half of the Seder. But the Hal also is a Sipur. As we say, Amut ki Vasaper I'm going to tell my story to somebody else. So I have to find the right place. Let's find the place where I, the best I can tell my story. And that's the place where people are gathering to tell their stories. I, go, I want to go to a place where I hear all those places. I want to go to those places where I can tell my story. So the person is searching for a public place. He can tell the most people there. And... That's the story. And he's searching. The, 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 the Psalm 118, he doesn't know where to go. He's searching for the place. He hears, he hears noises. He hears cries. There must be all like Sadiqin. There must be places, people gathering. I want to tell them my story. At the end of it, finally, he finds the place. Maybe as a response to his prayer, on Hashem or Shiona, maybe not. So that's the story. What do you want to say? This is very insightful, very original. Thank you. But except for what you they come to witness their story and they have people who confirm them in that witnessing. We don't have that. Oh, I don't think we don't have it. I mean, I think we that... Uh, let's put it this way. Most of the teachings, no. most of the deep Christian teachings, I'm, I'm not getting to the later church, but most of the stuff in the Gospels is basically you can find in... in I mean, I'm not saying that, let's say, the Gospels don't... Mm-hmm emphasize certain things more, they pick out certain things. Pretty much everything that's there you can find within within Jewish sources and Jewish practice, no doubt. But they put a different spin on it. The fact of the matter is there's a reason that Jews don't go around telling their stories, basically. Because <coughs> most of the time they told their stories they got, we got zapped. Right? We learned a long time ago so let's, let's say it around, not for, for better or worse I'm not saying right or wrong. So, But the idea of the Saper is in Hallel, and not just in Hallel. I'll tell you another place where you find it, one of my favorite psalms. Maybe this is a good segue. Psalm number, Psalm number, in fact, it's the, 
I mentioned this in the introduction to this Megillah that's coming out. This particular psalm, was it 40? Let's find the psalm. Where is it? Psalm number... Yeah. But, but you know, we, we, yes. we, do, uh, witness, we do tell our stories and witness. You, you don't say Kaddish except in the minion. We, we, you know, you, you know, it's shared by the congregation. We don't bench Gomel except... In True, but we're not going out to the world. In other words, the evangelicals are delivering God's message to the world. No, 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 but we are telling our story in congregation. In congregation, right. But I'm saying there's still a difference between in our own congregation and going out to some stranger on an airplane and saying, let me tell you my story. The stranger was reading a Tanakh and with a big yarmulke on his head, you know what I mean? So but there is a difference there. That's exactly, that's exactly the Russia on what you make of Amo. That's exactly the bifurcation, right there. Right. Okay, that's true. I... I, I I'm not saying it's wrong, by the way. There's something about it which is very powerful. Let me just see if I can find this particular psalm, just very quickly. Um, is it 40? I don't... Yes, I think it's... Yes. Psalm 40, actually, is where you have this idea. And it's a very, very beautiful psalm. Kaboki biti Hashem, it's on page 1459. And it talks about someone who's been... Who've been, who has been uh, redeemed, been saved, right? God lifted me out of the pits. My bar shaon, right? God put a new song in my mouth, a hymn to our God, on page 1459. And then, fine, it says the following. Verse number 7 on page 1460. You gave me to understand. This is the JPS translation, again, imprecise. You gave me to understand. You do not desire sacrifice and, and meal offering. You do not ask for burnt offering and sin offering. Then I said, this is this difficult verse, very famous one. Then I said, someone's been redeemed. What is, how do I pay it back? A sacrifice? You don't want a sacrifice, says the psalmist. You told me you don't want sacrifices. So what can I do? Then I said, Hine bati, I behold I have come, very difficult verse, my understanding of the verse is that you don't want me to bring sacrifices, but I have come with a scroll which recounts my story. In other words, what you want is not a sacrifice, but you do want me to tell my story, right? <coughs> and then, that's, and, and look at verse 10. Besides Rav, I proclaimed your righteousness in a great congregation. That's exactly what we're talking about. <coughs> this is the Megillah Sefer. One might say that the Megillah Esther is exactly that. Someone writes a Megillah to tell her story. To tell Esther, Esther's telling us the story, whoever is writing it telling the story of Mordechai and Esther, their redemption. So the, you can find within our tradition many such statements, and I think the Hallel is a piece of it, but the point I wanted to make about Hallel is this. I now want to get to Hanukkah. The point I wanted to make about Hallel is that basically the, the two different psalms, Psalm 116, which I claim is ending, sort of ends the first piece of Hallel, 
and in Psalm 180, which is the end of Hallel, the two of them end in absolutely parallel fashion. It's about somebody who's been redeemed, somebody who's been saved, who's trying to figure out the best way to respond. And in each case, the best way to respond is to go to some public place. In the first instance, it's Jerusalem, which is another word for the temple. It's the Migdash, basically. In the second case, it doesn't mention the word Jerusalem, but it calls it Beit Hashem. You've come to God's house. And what strikes me is the following point. And that is, if you think about the sixth, ver- the sixth chapter, the Hallel that we say, six chapters of Psalms, they begin with Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hashem. That's how they start. They start with, Praise God, you servants of God, Avdei Hashem. And the second psalm is Betei Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim. So the, it begins actually with leaving Egypt. It begins with a sense that we are now God's servants, which after all is what the Torah says. The Torah says that These are my servants, says God. Don't treat your fellow Jew like a slave, because they're not your slave, they're my slaves. When did they become my servants, says God, my avodim? When I took them out of Egypt. They were once Pharaoh's slaves, and now they're my servants. Shalach ha'mi what it says many times. God said, Moshe said to power many, many times, Shalach ha'mi send my people out, that they may serve me. So we begin the Hawel with a very simple statement, those who are Avdei Hashem should praise God. Avdei Hashem. When do we become Avdei Hashem? Betzei Yisrael min Mitzrayim. That's how Hallel begins. But how does Hallel actually end? What is the end of Hallel? The end of Hallel is about someone who's been redeemed, <coughs> who wants to find the temple, who wants to go to the public space, which we call the Mikdash or the Mishkan or Beit Hashem. And that actually, that idea of moving from deliverance into God's temple, okay? That is actually not a, that's not a, a Passover theme. In other words, you can anticipate it on Pesach. But Pesach is not about, actually, entering the Middash. Pesach and Middash have little to do with each other. In fact, in the Chumash, before you get to Sefer Devarim, the Passover, sac- yeah, the Passover sacrifice is brought inside your house. It's not brought in the temple. Clear in the Chumash, do you get to say for Devarim that the Chumash doesn't even mention the idea of bringing a sacrifice in the temple? You put it on the doorpost of your house. The holiday that actually is about the temple, well, Hanukkah is derivative Sukkot. Let's start with Sukkot. Sukkot is certainly the holiday which is the temple holiday. The very fact that it's eight days long, by the way, is itself striking because. The dedications of the temple in the Bible are always eight days. That's actually what Hanukkah is about. It's related to Sukkot indirectly, but but what is directly related to is the word Hanukkah. Temple dedications are eight days in the Bible and in the Torah itself by Yom HaShemini. When the Mishnah was dedicated, it's a seven-day celebration and then an eighth day. By Yom HaShemini was the day that the temple, the Mishkan, was consecrated and that's the idea of Sukkot. Sukkot's a temple holiday, and that's the idea of Hanukkah, which is related to Sukkot as well. So the point is, the days, this is what the, leaving the Gemara's technical explanations out of it, 
But what is clear is that the holiday that is a Hallel holiday is Sukkot and derivatively Hanukkah. Because what, what Hallel is actually about then is moving from a situation of being enslaved, of being in a difficult situation, whatever that was, Minameitzar, wherever, physically, spiritually, religiously, whatever it is, and then moving out of that place, but moving towards, searching for and discovering the public space that we call Jerusalem or the house of God or whatever. So therefore the hollow makes total and complete sense, perfect sense, for Sukkot and for and for Hanukkah. It makes actually less sense for Pesach and it's actually very interesting that in Pesach we actually split the hollow into two pieces for exactly that reason. Let me just say two words about the hollow at the Seder. It's in your Haggadah, Tova. Buah has the Haggadah. So it's, it's all there, but I want you to say what it is because there is something very, very striking about the way we say Hallel at the Seder. The way we say Hallel, we follow Beis Hillel's opinion. Beis Shammai had a different opinion. There's six psalms. Beis Shammai says you say one psalm before, you, before the meal. And the five psalms, including Betzeit, Yisrami, Mitzrayim, after the meal. Beis Shammai has a very simple position. It's a very simple position. Beis Shammai says that if in the first part of the Seder, you're telling the story, you can't actually tell the story without studying Hallel. That's Beishamah's opinion. How could you tell your story without saying Hallel? That's not possible. If you really understand that you're redeemed, it's a natural religious instinct. To, you have to start at least. <coughs> say something. Say Hallel. Hallel, you have Dei Hashem. We're now God's servants. You can't start your meal before you start Hallel. That's Beishamah. Beitelel said that's true, but we break Hallel into two pieces. And I just want to say one thing about Pitzet Yisrael Mi Mitzrayim, which is Psalm 114. In this, transla- in this JPS Bible here, it's on page, it's on page, let's see, 1,557. Very beautiful psalm, which is the second psalm. And by the way, just to repeat what I said earlier, we call it Halal HaMitzri, not just because of Psalm 114, just what I said earlier. It's how HaMitzri for a completely different reason. It's How HaMitzri because the psalmist is understanding that Yitziat Mitzrayim is a, is a paradigm. It's an example of what has been delivered. But there are personal deliverances. Everybody has their own personal difficulties. And the places that we enter into we can't figure out how to get out of. And places we feel we have no choices. We can't make a choice. And we have to Sometimes we somehow manage to escape those spaces, and then of course we, we want to be thankful. So that's how a mitzri, in a meitzakarat. But I want to say something about Psalm 114, and then to move to it's taking more time than I thought it would. So we can continue tomorrow with this. It doesn't, you know, something else tomorrow as well. But Betzeit Yisraeli Mitzrayim is the way we end the first half of the Seder. The first half of the Seder we call Magid. So it's very interesting. Let's just take a look at this piece of Hallel. Betzeit Yisrael mi Mitzrayim Beit Yaakov When Israel left Egypt when the house of Jacob left Amroeh is a people of strange speech. Haita Yehudah Kadsho 
Yisrael Mam Tav. What happened when we left Egypt? Two things happened. We became God's holy ones, right? Judah became God's holy one. And Israel, God's dominion. That's actually very, very interesting related to what we've been talking about. Because if we think about the paradigmatic song for all songs, which is Shirat Hayam. If you think about Shirat Hayam, it starts with Oz Yashir, right? Ashir Hashem Ki It starts with praise of God who took us out of Egypt and destroyed the Egyptian host. That's how it starts. How does the song of the sea end? song of the sea ends with God is bringing us across and God will bring us to the aim of a tita aim or God will bring us to God's holy mountain. Machon v'shiftecha mikdash Hashem kolonu yodecha. In Song of the Sea, the end of it is, it's God will bring us across to the other side and bring us to God's holy habitation. Nevei kodshecha mikdash Hashem. So we got to go to the sacred place. Hashem yimloch yolam va'ed in that holy place, God will reign forever. So the Song of the Sea ends with two themes. We're going to be brought over to Mikdash, to the holy place. In that holy place, Hashem Yimloch Yolam Va'ed, God will be king. That's what's going to happen in the future. In Psalm 114, what the psalm is doing, it sort of retrojects it back into the moment we leave Egypt. At that moment, at the Seder, the truth of the matter is that if you at the Seder, the core text of the Seder never talk about the future. The core text of the Seder, the core text, are always talking about the moment you left Egypt. So here it's at the moment we left Egypt. At that moment, we became God's holy people, Mikdash Hashem. And at that moment, Mabishalotah, for the word Moshe, which is a king or a ruler, we became God's subjects. God became our king. In the Song of the Sea, that happens later at some future point. But the psalmist in 114, the poetry says, no, at the moment we left Egypt, this happened. So it's, it's playing once again off the Shiratayam, but it takes Shiratayam, which talks about a future moment, says this happened when we first left Egypt, at this moment of walking out of Mitzrayim. And then at, at that moment, something else happened too. Says the poet, Hayam ra'av hayanos, at the moment we left Egypt, the sea turned back, right? It's, it reminds us to some extent of Kriyat Yamsuf over here, but it's all happening at the moment we're leaving in this poem. In other words, as we're leaving, one might say the whole world is moving with us. We're walking out of Egypt, and the poet sees everything moving. The Yam is... the the hills are skipping, the sea is fleeing, right? And now, the poet asks the question, Why do you flee, O sea? Jordan, why do you turn back? Why, O mountains, do you skip like rams? Give out hills like sheep. <coughs> How many questions are there over here? There are four questions. But in other words, the point is that 
the choice of this psalm to end Magid has another feature to it, which is not just the text itself of Petatius Mitzrayim, but actually it, it connects something very deep about the Haggadah as we have it. The Haggadah as we have it is a set of questions and answers from beginning to end, by the way, not just the Manishtana. Then you have the Abavanim who are asking questions. And not only that, you even have at the Seder Pesach Matzul Marar, which in the Mishnah is not a question. Pesach, you read for this reason. In the Seder we say, Pesach Zoshanu Ochlim Al Shumah. The Haggadah transforms it into a question. And now we're ending with four more questions. Why are you, why? What's, what's going on? Oh, mount, the mountains and the, and the rivers and the hills. Why are you behaving this way as Israel is walking out of Egypt? And what's the answer? The answer is, Adon Chuli Aretz, Yaakov. What is the answer actually? What is the meaning of Adon Chuli Ares? What is the meaning of the word Chuli? How many times do we say this, by the way? We think about this? What does Chuli mean? It's an awesome song. What does Chuli mean? Adon Chuli Ares. No, Chuli is not Chole is we. Chuli, the two possibilities here. What? Relative secularity related to the Kodesh. I don't think it means Chol in that sense. I don't think it means that. It's from the word Chuli is related to one of two possibilities. One is simply the word Chil. The simple meaning is the, the rivers are the rivers running away but the mountains are skipping. So there are two possibilities. One is that the sense is God is, God is, God is, God is taking a people out of Mitzrayim. It's like an unbelievable act which is not, which is unnatural, supernatural, ten plagues. So when that happens, all of nature is trembling, actually. The word chil appears in, of course, Song of the Sea. Chil Achaz Yoshvei Polashit. The Song of the Sea, in fact, has seven <coughs> words for fear. Seven. Shamu Amim Yirgazun is one. Chil Achaz Yoshvei Polashit is two. Oz Niv Haru is three. Alufei Adom is three. Elei Moab Yochazei Murad is four. Namogu Kol Yoshvei Kanan is five. Tipo Aleihem Emata Vafachan is seven. Seven different words for fear. So, of course, here, as Israel is leaving Egypt, and we are recalling the Song of the Sea, right? The Migdash and the and the Hashem Yimrochi Yolam Vaed, and the Yadim, it's all happening in the moment we're leaving. Adon Chuli Aretz. One possibility is, before the God, we are trembling. The God, God who changes rocks into, in, in, into, into water. If you're a rock, you better start trembling. And if you're water, you should tremble too. Because the same God that can change rock into water can probably change water into rocks. So we stand on even trembling. We tremble before the God. That's one possibility. But there is another possibility for Chuli, actually, from a different word. I think it's related to the word Lechorel. Lechorel means to dance. In fact, it also appears in the Song of the Sea. The Song of the Sea has both. Has Chil Achaz Yoshvei Pulashet? At the end of the song of the sea, Patikach Miyam Hanviyah Chot Aaron Atatov Biyada. 
ותצאנה כל הנשים אחריה בתופים ובמחולות. תופים ומחולות. And the truth of the matter is, it's very hard to know what it means over here. Does it mean to tremble before God? It sounds like the rivers are trembling. But the mountains are dancing, it says. So you have both. You have the trembling and you have the dancing. You have the chil and you have the mecholot. The truth, of course, is there's no contradiction. Gilu birada, of course, simultaneously, obviously, correct. You stand before God, you do both. You tremble, but you also rejoice. Gilu birada is the expression tremble in, in, in rejoicing, rejoice in trembling, is the term the Gemara uses to describe a particular interesting, important religious institution we have. It's called prayer. That's what the Gemara describes prayer. Gilu birada. In prayer, we are trembling in joy. So the point is, here you have the chuli. The chuli plays the word chuli actually plays off the double use of chil or chalel in Shiratayam. It all comes back to the song of the sea. So here you have actually at the seder we actually end. This ends the first half of the seder. You end the first half of the seder by reciting a psalm that plays into a very basic idea of the Seder, one of the most basic ideas of the Seder, which is that at the night of Passover, we see ourselves as leaving Egypt. This is actually a very important point. In every generation, we see ourselves as leaving Egypt. Now, what does that mean, we see ourselves as leaving Egypt? What does it actually mean? Here you have this, here you put the, the core texts of the Seder are that way. The core texts never speak about the future, never speak about the land. There are two, two places at the Seder where we talk about the future, but they're not core texts of the Seder. One is Dayenu, mm-hmm. and the other is the Medrash about what happens at the sea. But those are not the core texts, those are ancillary texts. The core texts of the Seder never get beyond the moment you leave. And they even chop out verses that talk about the future. We don't deal with it. I'll tell you what that's about, in my view. Why it's important to see yourself as leaving Egypt. Because the truth of the matter is that Haggadah, the problem with history is very simple. It's a very simple problem. There are many problems, but here's one of them. I don't mean studying history to illuminate our, our, our tradition. There is some value to that. In fact, we have historians coming in here and teaching during these, as its limits, how much information we have. But I'm talking about a different problem with history. It's like watching a movie for the second time. The problem is you know the ending. So when you're studying history, okay, you're always <coughs> studying history standing where we're standing. And in order to study history properly, you can't stand where we're standing. You have to try to put yourself where they were standing. So at the Seder, we actually try to do that. At the Seder, the cortex of the Seder never talk about, imagine you're walking out of Egypt. You don't know, you're not sure what's going to happen in the future. You don't know about the land and about Sinai and about the Mon and about all that stuff. And the, in order to appreciate the moment, <coughs> Seder wants us to put ourselves in that moment. That's the idea of seeing ourselves in the moment to try to fully understand the challenges, the struggles, etc. That's part of it. In any event, at the Seder, so the B'tseid Yisrami Mitzrayim is where you end the Magid. And that talks about what happened in the past. The last four that we say at the Seder 
are all about after the meal. It's about the future. It's about hoping for future redemption. It's about prayers. We put, we have a cup on the table. We say it's Elijah's cup, the fifth cup, or whatever. We believe there will be this hope. We believe that the world is capable of redemption, even if we have many doubts about that. But we we put it the cup on the table. But that's not what we're actually celebrating. That's hope for the future. But Sukkot and Hanukkah are not are not that. Sukkot and Hanukkah are actually celebrating the temple. Hanukkah is a celebration of the lights of the temple, which we transpose to our homes. Sukkot is actually about the Mikdash. It's about the Mishkan. It's about God's presence. So that's why Hallel is primarily a Sukkot prayer. But Pesach, okay, we're going to say it one time on Pesach because we were redeemed and because Pesach begins the process of redemption for some uncertain future. So that's the... That's, anyway, that's part one what I wanted to say about Hallel in relationship to Hanukkah. And now, at least let's begin with Hallel in relationship to the Megillah. So, I just want to remind ourselves here that the Gemara said that you don't say Hallel on Purim. Because Kriyata Zoe Hivula. Okay? The recitation of the Megillah is the Hallel. But what does that mean? recitation of the Megillah is the hollow. It's a strange hollow, since God is never mentioned in the Megillah at all. So I want to say something about, about the Megillah, near and dear to my heart, I will say, but, and that is, we only have about half an hour here, I just figured the best way to do this. And we'll continue tomorrow with this. I just wanted to say something about, it's more global about reading the Megillah. The Megillah is obviously one of the last books of the Bible. If it's not the last book of the Bible, it's pretty close. The only thing that's certainly later than the Megillah is the second half of the book of Daniel. The second half of the book of Daniel, by the way, many, many scholars presume that Daniel's prophecies about the future... Did you discuss this at all? Spoke about Daniel's. You talk about the second half of Daniel. No. Many believe that Daniel's second half of Daniel. Then there was two pieces to it. The second half, right? The first part, and then the second part of these visions of Daniel. And many scholars believe that the visions of Daniel refer specifically to uh, Antiochus. Actually, that they're actually a prophecy about Antiochus, which they presume took place around the time of Antiochus, about 168. If that be the case, so the consensus in the scholarly world, I have no reason to dispute it, by the way, I have no idea. I accept it, actually. That's probably so. Which would make Daniel, by far and away, the last book of the, probably the last book of the Bible. Second half of Daniel. I'm not convinced the first piece of Daniel is, uh, is the same dating. And it's, if it's leaving out the second half of Daniel, the book of Esther is pretty much around the last book that we have. There's several late books. I believe Esther is actually... Personally, the last book, outside of Second Daniel. Yes, I do. I do think so. I believe it's the last book, and I believe it's it's very late, and I believe that it is uh, together with first, together with First Daniel, which are obviously related to each other in many ways. Anyway, the point is that the Megillah is. How do you read the Megillah? The Megillah is a unique book in, in the following sense. Unlike the later books of the Bible, I'm going to take Daniel. 
what was say Ezra, Nehemiah, these books, these are late works. In those books, the idea of the book is that it's about Jews living in exile. But the idea of Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel, and Daniel's friends, is that somehow two things are interesting. Number one, it's about retaining your Jewish practice in exile. Daniel was praying in exile. Daniel won't eat the food of the king. Uh, his friends won't bow down to the idol. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, these are presumably observant Jews. And not just are they observant Jews, but Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah have something else in common, which is all of them are looking towards the land of Israel and either trying to rebuild the land of Israel, Daniel prays facing the land of Israel three times a day. So this is one model for, you know, Jewish life in exile requires some kind of observance, otherwise it all gets lost. Those are those books. Then we have the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is stunning by contrast. The book of Esther says nothing about observance of anybody, quite the opposite. The hero, or heroine, is somebody who seems to observe nothing. Not only observes nothing, but doesn't even seem to be aware of what every single Jew in Persia knows, namely, that the Jews of Persia are in great mortal danger. She has no idea. Mordechai sitting outside her palace in sackcloth, and in, right, in ashes, and she sends a messenger. What's the problem, you know? She sends clothing to him. Get dressed, you know? What, 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 what's, the, what's the issue here? I can, I'll help you out, whatever it is. Seems to have no idea, actually. So the book of Esther raises the question. Not only that, unlike the book of Daniel, let's say, Ezra and Nehemiah, in which they talk about God, right? Especially the book of Daniel. The book of Esther never talks about God at all. And not only that, God seems conspicuously absent from the book altogether. There's no mention of God in the book, nor does God ever speak in the book. So one way to read, so the, the question is, how do you read the Megillah? That's the question. And here there are three potential ways to read the Megillah. One way to read the Megillah is to see that God is involved. But God is somebody operating in the distance, what they like, Hester Pani. And if you read the Megillah, what? Esther. 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 Esther is a play. That's right. And it comes through Esther, but the name Esther suggests to us that even though God appears removed totally from the story, there is a way to read the story to say that God from a distance is helping us out. It's, God is in the distance, not obvious, but God is there. That's, I think, probably the way that many... Uh, traditional Jews like to read the book of Esther, that God is present in the book and from, from, from a distance. There is an alternative way to read the book. Let's put it this way. If you're walking in the street and you came across this little scroll, the book of Esther about a queen and a king and Haman, and you just read the story from beginning to end, I don't think too many of us would assume that this is a deeply religious book where God is there helping us out. I would think you'd read a sounds like a palace intrigue, basically. Sounds like we were fortunate to survive. Maybe Esther is clever, but I don't think necessarily you would presume that God is in the book. I don't think you would assume that. It's a different way to read it. And the question is, these are two different ways to read it. One is to see God in the book, 
and the other is to see that God is just not there. It's just a, it's a, a set of random events. We were saved. It could, it could be the other way. Now that second reading is not one that would be very popular, I think, with too many traditional Jews. Say that it's a book about randomness. Say to deny God's presence in the story completely. But when you read the book, it's certainly a viable option in reading the book. Those are two possibilities. There's a third possibility. So that's, that's what I wanted to suggest, the third possibility. Well, it sounds crazy when you hear it, actually. Before I get to the third possibility, I didn't want to say something about the second possibility, which is that it's a book in which things happen <coughs> randomly. That, yes, we were delivered, that's true, but it could equally have been the other way. Now the question is, who reads the book that way? Who, who actually reads the book that way? I don't think that when you come to the classic Jewish commentaries, or nowadays, I would say, the observant community, and even the less observant community, I don't think you read the book of Esther that way, that God is completely absent from it. But I think there are people who actually, it would appear to me, are at least suggesting that that reading is a viable possibility. And those who read it that way, I think, are the Jewish people. And they read it that way, not consciously, un- unconsciously, in the following sense. They read it that way in the way they observe Purim. The observances of Purim, because there are two different ways, it's not just the drunkenness, it's, it goes, it's part of it. But it's, the, there are two observances of Purim. There's one observance of Purim on the books. You open up the Shulchan Aruch, maybe in the Gemara, the Rambam has it this way. If you ask someone, what is Purim? What do you do on Purim? Oh, a Purim is, we, we, we read the Megillah, we have a kind of Torah reading, and we read the Megillah, and then we have a, a meal on Purim, Suda, right? And we give charity on Purim. And part of the Suda is to enable other people to have a Suda as well, and we give Mishloach Manot. And that fundamentally, if you think about it, that observance of the day, which is to read the Torah and to have a festive meal and maybe throw in some charity as well, I would say it's a pretty standard observance of Jewish holidays. Yeah. Torah speaks about the Jewish holidays with Samachta Bechagecha, make sure to include the disenfranchised, the poor. The idea of reading a sacred text on the festivals. Mikra Kodesh, maybe it's connected to that idea. All the festivals. We have special Shabbat, we read a special Torah reading. All the festivals. <coughs> so that, that conception of Purim is not very different from Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, etc. True, you're allowed to work on Purim. There's no Isur Mulacha. Okay, it's rabbinic. But fundamentally, it's in that same camp. It's in the same ballpark. That's one observance of Purim. Then you have the folk observance of Purim. And the folk observance of Purim is radically different. There it's cross-dressing. There it's making a mockery of the Torah called Purim Torah. They're not only getting drunk, and not only during the meal, but getting drunk until you don't know the difference between Mordechai and Haman. Uh, it's another interesting custom on Purim is that the meal of Purim itself, in many or ancient customs, is to start the meal of Purim at the last split second of the day. So essentially, you're eating the meal after Purim is over. Here's another custom of Purim. 
to make so much noise during the Megillah, you can't even hear it. Right. right? It's not just Haman, by the way. The, old, the, old, the whole discussion about the noise during the Megillah is just making noise, period. Not just, right? So between the cross-dressing and the mockery of Torah, they call Purim Torah, and the, making so much noise you can't hear the Megillah, and eating the meal after the holiday is already over, and by the way, in giving the, the matanot to every name indiscriminately to anybody that asks, without any reference to need or who's asking, is another one. In short, and the wearing of masks and disguises, all of this point in two interesting directions. First of all, it's the complete obliteration of all distinctions that we make. In other words, the idea of that we live in a world and we make distinctions. That's how we function in the world. There's a Seder. So we distinguish, we make gender distinctions. Men do this, women do that. Maybe they get tweaked, maybe they get changed. But fundamentally, that's a, we make those, that's a very critical distinction. Then we distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. Then we say we have a moral code to guide us in this world. We call it Torah. Right? So the point is that these folk observances of Purim, okay? Men dressing in women and women as men, a mockery of the Torah and obliterating of all these distinctions, basically, is interesting on two levels. First of all, it's the obliteration of, of these distinctions. So we're saying, you think the world has a Seder. You believe that there's an order to the world, right? I'm listening to you, unconsciously saying, right? Or the appointing of someone on the, in the yeshiva on that day, that the head of the yeshiva is some child. It's an ancient custom, a rav purim. It's an ancient custom. All these points in the same direction, which is, you think there's a hierarchy in society, the distinctions you make. Let me tell you something about these distinctions. They're all of them artificial. At its core, these distinctions don't exist. At its core, the idea of a Seder doesn't exist. The world is random. Happens a certain way, okay, could equally happen the opposite way. And that, the Jewish people have observed this, these various, and it's not any one thing, it's a whole bunch of things, actually. And the observances, unconsciously, I'm not saying people consciously think this way, but unconsciously, the sum total of the observances point in only one direction, which is randomness. So, and you can read the Megillah that way. It's easy to read the Megillah that way. That night the king couldn't sleep, and the Jews are saved. And what if he could have slept? <laughs> what if he could have slept? What happens then? What happens if he does sleep that night? He wakes up bright and early and Haman's there in the morning. What do you want? So again, that's a potential... I'm not saying it's the only way to read the Megillah. I'm saying it's a possible reading. These are two ways to read it. The way that most traditional people prefer to read it is that God is involved in some way. Yes, God's not mentioned. God is hidden. But God's involved. <coughs> God that's his cleverness. But without God's help, we don't have anything fun. Those are two potential readings. I wanted to suggest a third possibility. And that is the opposite possibility. And not only is God involved in the Megillah, but God is calling all the shots. That the Megillah essentially is simply a working out of God's plan. And that the human beings are very secondary in the Megillah. That the Megillah, which says not one word about God, is actually the opposite. That is actually God's book from beginning to end. Now this may sound completely crazy to you, sounds crazy to me too, but I think it's actually a very viable reading. It's viable 
when you read the Megillah in, in, in the context of other stories, and in particular, one particular text, which has all kinds of interesting parallels to, to the Megillah, and I'll even make sense of it. Now, whether you'll say this is the best of, the, of these three possibilities, whether you like this one the best or not, I don't know. But I don't think that, hopefully, in 20 minutes, you'll walk out thinking it's completely crazy. We can discuss this more tomorrow. The text that interests me over here, of course, is Shirat Hayam. The song of it. It's the very same text that lies behind the Harel. And we saw connections to the Harel. Ozi v'zimrat kar v'yili v'shua The triple Yemin Hashem The chil and the mecholot The beginning with uh, leaving Mitzrayim and ending with the Mikdash. So we see this in the... What about the Megillah? What about the Megillah? So first of all, before I get to the text of, how, of uh, the text, I want to make a different point about, about the Megillah. I want to say what got, me, what got me thinking about this possibility altogether. What got me thinking about the possibility was when someone said to me, well, we all know this, the name of God never appears in the Megillah. Now, I'm not going to be able to, this is a whole, I'm not going to spend two hours on the Megillah now. It wouldn't be so bad, actually, but, but I'm not going to do that. But someone said to me, the name of God never appears in the Megillah, which is true, actually, except for one thing. There is one place where the name of God does appear in the Megillah. And it's the following verse. Now we can move to the Megillah. So let's see what this is. <coughs> One place we have it. The Megillah. Yep. Okay. The Megillah actually introduces in chapter number two. We're introduced to our two heroes, Mordechai and Esther. Start with Mordechai on page 1787. So we introduced to Mordechai. Mordechai is from the tribe of Binyamin. And we're told something about Mordechai. Mordechai was exiled from Jerusalem together with the carried away in the exile in Yechania Melech Yehuda. He was brought out of the exile together with Yechania, the king of Judah. This raises a problem, by the way, which I'm not going to, not our problem here. There is a problem with the history of the Megillah because it doesn't seem to work out. The dates don't work out. If he's exiled with Yechania, whatever year that is, it's about a hundred, about hundred years before Achashverosh. So, in other words, he'd be about a hundred and thirty some odd years old at the time. His, his Esther would be over a hundred years old. Doesn't sound that way. So they call them the young girls to the palace that she's over a hundred years old. <laughs> so we know, of course, the the the, the, the external chronology for the Megillah was very problematic. The story is hard to believe. I mean, it's just very, very 
hard to believe such a thing actually historically took place. But, but the point is, internally, there's a problem. Leave that out. That's not, I'm not interested in that, per se. What interests me is that Mordechai was exiled with King Yechania. Now, Yechania... Yechania is... Yechania is also called. In the Megillah, it's called Yechania. So there you have Yechania. Yechania. There you have, actually, God's name. Now, the point is, this got me to think, you know? The trick with these things is, when you have... You pursue a certain line of thought, not to give up in the middle. You pursue it to the end. Sometimes when you get there, you say, it's and you drop it. Okay, fine. Happens all the time. But sometimes you pursue it, and you say, you know something? Maybe there's something here. Because it gets, suddenly it struck me, first of all, why mention Yechanya altogether here? Especially Yechanya is put in here to say something about Yechanya. And it suddenly struck me that the, this verb, Yechanya, actually we find in the Megillah in two other places. <coughs> first of all, the very person who... Who, dis, who, depo, who gets the king to depose Vashti is named Memuchan. That's number one. That's number one. Memuchan and Memuchan is the same word. Right. And Memuchan, by the way, it's interesting. It's a very funny book. The Megillah, Memuchan speaks in the first chapter about the women rebelling against the men, this, that. It's by far and away the longest speech of the Megillah. The Megillah has very few speeches. The, 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 the narrative tells most they're very, relatively, very few speeches in the... Mordechai only speaks, it directs speaks one time, Mordechai, only once. The Mordechai has the longest speech of a hundred words by far and away. But the second point is that the Megillah plays with the word again later, and that is with Haman. Because Haman, it prepares the apes, the, the gallows for Mordechai, Hechin. He's Mechin the apes, and he gets up hanged, our apes asher Hechin well. So that this got me thinking about the idea of Yechania that God has prepared the story. And I'll tell you what I, and I'll tell you what I, what, I, what I thought about it. I began to think about the following idea. Now don't, don't, don't object to it. Just, just hear me out. And I began to think about the following thought. That actually the enemy, the story in the Megillah, the enemy leaving Yachashverosh out of it was a bad guy. Okay, but leave him out of it. But the primary enemy is Haman. Haman is Haman the Agagite, Agag. Agag is the king of Amalek. It is true and important that the Megillah never says the word Amalek altogether, actually. But leaving that, leaving that question out, why the word Amalek doesn't appear, having said all that, there are many references in the Megillah to Amalek, and Agag is the king of Amalek. Now when it comes to Amalek, the Torah says a very interesting thing. The Torah says, and only about Amalek, God has a war, a battle against Amalek in every generation. So I began to think about the following possibility. That maybe the idea of Mordechai and Yechania, that God is setting something up, maybe God is using Israel as bait. Maybe Mordechai and Esther are essentially the bait God wants to use Mordechai and Esther as a means to destroy God's enemy, which is Amalek. Now maybe you'll say to me, that's very not nice on God's part to do such a thing. God could have given us a little warning, could have whispered in our ear, hey, you know what I mean? But I would say, if you say it's not nice for God to do it, what I would say to you is, that may be true. 
but it's not the first time God is doing it. I'll give you another example where God does exactly the same thing. God uses Israel as bait. God puts us in a terrible predicament. We assume we're all going to die. And then we are delivered. I'll tell you the story. The story is found in the Torah, actually. In fact, it's found in the book of Exodus, of all places. How about, no, not a Malik, no. It's found in chapter 13. After we leave Egypt, we are leaving chapter 13. We are leaving the land of Egypt. God has sent us out of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh, the, the ten plagues. Fine. So we leave Egypt, and the Torah says, on page 140, God caused Israel, led us by the roundabout way, by Yasev. God caused us to go a roundabout way by the wilderness, Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, called the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. Fine. Then it says, we're traveling through the desert, right? God is guiding us through the desert. And now in chapter 14, chapter 14, Vaydaber Hashem Moshe Leymar, Taber B'nei Yisrael, speak to Israel. V'yashuvu v'yachanu l'fnei piach, he wrote. God says, tell Israel they should turn around and go to Piach, he wrote, Ben Migdor Ben Ayam, Tell Israel to turn around and to encamp by the sea. God taking us out of our way, the Yeshuvu. Okay? So God suddenly moves us in front of the sea. And then God said, And God said, They must be confused. Pharaoh will say, They must be confused. The wilderness is closed in on them. And I will strengthen Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after you. And I will be glorified against Pharaoh. Right? And they will know that I am God. And they did such a thing. So Israel <coughs> is told to change course. The Yashuvu. So there we are standing in front of the sea. We Israel. And so we look behind us. Uh oh. There comes Pharaoh with his 600 chariots are coming towards us. Right? In verse number, page 142, Here we are. In front of Baal Tzaphon, the sea in front of us, Pharaoh behind us, no place to go forward, no place to go backwards. God has put us in this space. The Yashuvu. We should return. Pharaoh says, right? Pharaoh's getting close. Israel turns to Moshe and says, what? There are no graves in Egypt? You have to bury us out here? We were better off staying in the land of Egypt. We'd rather serve them. What is this? So Moshe's God, <coughs> so God said, Moshe says, don't worry, says Moshe, right? God, don't worry, don't worry so much. You're not going to have a problem. Hashem, you Yilachem, Yilachem, Yatem Tachavishun, you God will fight for you. You should be silent. Ten Tacharish. Now we know the story. God said to Moshe, what are you crying out for? Keep walking. Keep going. Keep traveling. <coughs> it's going to be okay. <coughs> Fun. So we travel straight. The water's split. And then the Egyptians come into the water. And what happens to the Egyptians? 
Verse number 28. Verse 26. Verse 26. So what's the point over here? What did God do over here? God took us out of Egypt. God maneuvered, maneuvered us in a roundabout way. Then tells us, puts us in a place. We're going to be destroyed. We have no way to escape. In front of us, the water. Behind us, each Israel. We cry out to God. Keep walking. And then God delivered us. It's exactly, actually, if you think about it, it's exactly what is described in Havel. It's what the person describes in Psalm 118, in Havel. It's exactly the same thing. We are surrounded on all sides. Kogoyim svavuni. Sabuni gam svavuni. Sabuni kidzvorim. Tochol dechitani gunpo. Vashem ozorani. Ozi vizimrat kaf. It's exactly the story. Right? God put us in a terrible place. On all sides, we have no place to move. On all sides, surrounded. The Yam on one. Paro. But then God delivered us at the last moment, and we said, Oziva Zimrat Yah, which is the second verse of the Psalm of the Sea. Now let's imagine for a moment that we have a similar story with Amalek. Let's imagine that God, in the story of Am- in the Megillah, is interested not in getting rid of Pharaoh and demonstrating God's prowess before Pharaoh. But God has a different agenda, which God has spelled out so many times. Namely, So God has an M.O. already. How do you do this? You draw, you draw them in. You draw Malik in. He sees an easy opportunity to destroy a weak people. And as he thinks he's going to do it, God is going to use God, these people to destroy God's enemy. I say he's going to use the people because with Amalek, it's never just God destroying them. With Amalek, it's always a joint effort. Even in the Torah, when, when Amalek first comes and fights us, right? And Moshe goes to the top of the mountain and raises his arms to heaven, but Yoshua is below fighting. It's a joint effort. Let me just say, that in the Megillah, when Mordechai appeals to Esther to save the Jews, because Mordechai says, they're going to be all be destroyed. And Esther says, what can I, Esther says, look, I can't go to the king, it's against the law, I give. She's a law-abiding citizen, the king has rules, and when you can enter, I, can't, I maybe can save you, I can't save them. So what did Mordechai say to her? Remember, what did Mordechai say? He says, you have to, because it's your opportunity. What did he say? Right. Yes. It's exactly what you can't at the sea. Well, what did Moshe say at the sea to the people? When it comes to Mitzrayim, actually, the ten plagues, God does it alone. When it comes to Amalek, God never does it alone. So God needs human support. So therefore, 
the name of my Megillah, Imuyet Kazot. That, of course, is the dramatic moment in the Megillah. But now what's interesting is, if you think in these terms, now the next question is, how does the Megillah actually express this? In other words, if this is true, you would find language in the Megillah which would, which would reflect this idea that, that a way... I want to just say again, I'm not, not suggesting it's the only way to read the Megillah. Not at all suggesting that. I'm suggesting that there are three viable ways to read this book, the Megillah. The Megillah lends itself to three different readings, all of which are viable. And let me just... Maybe I'll explain more of this tomorrow morning. Let me just say something else about reading, which is a very important point. And that's what I do in t- about reading a text. The, let me say one last word about this for now. Tomorrow I will talk more about this, the, the, where, what in the Megillah, where can you actually see in the Megillah that is picking up on the story? Where can you see this? Can I make a different point about the Megillah? There is a, in general, this, what, I, this, what I've done here and what I typically do are, are, are readings of the text. It's, it's a literary approach to the, to the study of uh, of Tanakh and I think it's to me a very fruitful approach um, the way these texts play off each other <coughs> now over the last 40 or 50 years what's become actually one of the things that's discussed a lot in terms of interpreting biblical texts is what a guy named Mayor Sturm would put out there he had a term for it called gapping and what he talked about is that many texts are not are not determinate. By that he meant that there are many texts when you read them, you can you can read them in two different ways, and you can't actually figure out which of the two ways is the better way to read them. And you can't figure it out not because something's wrong with you. You can't figure it out. He claims because you can never figure it out because the text actually lends itself to two different readings, and it doesn't want you to be able to figure it out. Both are viable readings. I want to make one point about McGill and Esther, which is this. I many years ago, lived in splendid isolation from all the academy, knew nothing about it, little yeshiva boy, and I discovered in the last several years that many things that I was doing for years, they're actually fancy names for, I didn't know that. But I'm not saying that is a good thing, because I, over time I've come much more in touch with what's going on. But I would say the following thing about gapping. I believe it has its great limitation. Sternberg, I think, overplayed his hands here. But I'll say there is one book which is truly indeterminate. Where you really, at the core of the book, it lends itself to do different readings, that's Megillah and Esther. I don't think when you read Megillah and Esther, you could ever determine whether Achashverosh is just a stupid person or whether he's a bad guy. You can't. There are two different ways. To, by the way, those two things do not contradict each other. You can be a fool and a bad guy at the same time. Um, the point is that the book does not. The book is a book in which whether Achashverosh is a Russia or a Tipesh are both very viable readings. More than any book of the Bible, it's a book that lends itself to a kind of indeterminacy. Maybe that is related to the very idea of the book of being in exile, of, of, of God's absence. That it's really un- the, the, the lack of clarity. Maybe it's related to that. But in any event, the, the claim that I'm trying to advance over here is. Two things. First of all, that this reading, which is not one intuitively obvious at all, it's kind of sounds crazy when you hear it, that actually the Megillah is God's working out of a plan, I want to try to suggest to buttress the argument tomorrow. That's number one. 
Number two, the second point is that both the Harel of we have our text of Harel and the Megillah play off the same text. That the core one of the core texts of the Megillah, one of the many, but one of the core texts of the Megillah <coughs> is actually the Song of the Sea. And we'll hopefully tomorrow I can demonstrate that the Song of the Sea is referenced in the Megillah, let me say in ten places, okay? Top I hope I can do ten, I don't know. But but some of them are to be clear actually. Very striking and it's a way to read, not the only way.